Previously on American Jihadi. Main objective is to die as a martyr. So the fact that we got two uh, martyrs is nothing more than a victory in and of itself. It's the guy that everybody knows is Abu Mansur al-Amriki, but I know him as Omar Hamami because that's the guy who I grew up with. I record this message today because I feel that my life may be in danger. How does it feel to be chatting with one of the world's most wanted men? I kind of feel like I'm talking to a friend of mine. That's the weirdest feeling about it. Omar only communicates with Putzel. The only reason we're staying here, away from our families, is because we're waiting to meet with the enemy. So, inshallah. Is he killing people? Is he. I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew that that was my brother on TV. I'm going to be a ghost for a while, and if I live to see the other side, we can try to link up again. Here's the link to the audio responses. This could be goodbye for a while, or forever. I just pray that God gives me the strength to, to finish strong. Omar and I had been writing back and forth every day for more than a month when he sent his last email with the subject line, Houston, we have a problem. Then, nothing. I watched on TV as African Union troops overran al-Shabaab's strongholds. On Twitter, there was an account that posted an endless stream of photos of dead fighters. It was hard to imagine that Omar could have survived. Months went by. Omar was gone. Right before he had disappeared, he'd sent me an audio recording of him asking questions I sent him and then answering them. Describe your life as a jihadi in combat. What did you eat? Where did you sleep? Etc. It was haunting to hear Omar's actual voice. Uh... Describe fighting. I guess I'd say um, adrenaline, hunger, thirst, uncertainty, fatigue, and uh, maybe some other fun things. You eat whatever you can find, and you sleep whenever and wherever you can. But uh, in all honesty, really, I guess it really can be uh, quite exhilarating at times, just knowing that you're putting your life on the line for what you believe. And of course, you know, it's, it's much better when you win. My wife had moved to London full-time for grad school. She had a vague idea of what I was working on, but not the details. We both preferred it that way. Her father had once been the acting secretary of defense, and it seemed smarter not to put her in the middle of a story like this. About once a week, I would sit alone in the living room of our apartment in L.A., listening to the tape. Your father said that you love America and would never attack it. Is that true? I'd say I guess that's probably true of my mentality back in maybe the sixth grade, but uh, not after I accepted Islam and realized all the wrongs America's doing against the Ummah. I mean, how could I really think about refraining from attacking America? Well, they're not just attacking the Ummah day and night. They're actually putting people just like me on the kill list for their cowardly drones. Not that I would overstep the bounds of Sharia or to attack America or Americans, but given a legitimate opportunity, Against legitimate targets, I don't see why I should hold back from attacking them. I mean, I, I think we're at war as far as I can tell. A part of me was relieved that I didn't have to deal with Omar anymore. That now that he was presumed dead, I didn't wake up every morning to a new email from a wanted terrorist. But I couldn't stop listening to the recordings. I found them so frustrating. I couldn't push back on what Omar said. I couldn't ask follow-up questions. I had set myself the job of trying to understand Omar so that I could explain him to the world. 
Despite all the access I had to him, I never quite got there. Then one night at 3 a.m., when I was home asleep, my phone rang. It was a man's voice over a staticky connection. I asked who was calling. I heard a chuckle on the other end of the line. He said, it's your friend from Somalia. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode five, The Ride. I literally fell out of my bed onto the floor when I realized who was calling me. I told Omar that it wasn't a secure line, but he said he didn't care, just to write down his number and call him back. I ran to the room where I kept my computer and turned on a recorder, but I couldn't get through. I had no idea why he was suddenly willing to risk talking to me on the phone. He had told me a bunch of times he was afraid the U.S. military could use his cell signal to geolocate him and send a drone. Hey, can you hear me now? Shit, man, I can't hear you. But for two hours, I couldn't get him back on the line to ask him. Hello? Hey. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> What's going on, man? Finally, I got him. Frankly, dude, I didn't, I didn't know if you were still alive. You know, man, nobody knew if you were still alive. Like, this is the first phone call. I, I mean... Like, that was kind of a big question. And, the, and it was kind of weird to be waking up every day and not be getting your communications after we've been doing it for so long. So it was... Those first phone calls are so chaotic. Me scrambling to ask my questions before the line went dead again. So basically, man, I just, uh, because it's so hard to get through to you, I just want to just, um, just talk to you now, get a sense of what's going on. And um, where have you been for the past four and a half months? The phone calls can be hard to hear at times, so I'll just summarize. For months, Omar had been hiding out in a city, but when the African Union troops attacked, the city had stopped being a safe place for him. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, anyway, I initially, I made a bid for me and another guy who went to, uh, we were trying to come to this Omar made his getaway from the empty house and set off in the direction of the forest. It was him, another foreign fighter, and a donkey to carry their stuff. My best guess was that they had started somewhere about 45 miles southwest of Mogadishu. Had you been in Merka, the, uh, the area, where, where had you been when we were communicating? Okay, that's okay. You don't have to tell me. That's fine. Omar thought talking on the phone could get him killed by a drone, and I had just asked him to be more precise about his location. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. So you went into the forest, and you were there, like, and was it, were you hiding? Like, like you had mentioned before that you thought you were going to be, like, ducking in the mud and eating snails and drinking urine. Like, did any of that end up coming about? Omar's goal was to reach the neighboring regions of Bayan Bacol in southern Somalia. He'd once been a leader in that area, and one of his wives was part of a powerful clan there. But Bay and Bacol were about 200 miles away, and he was traveling on foot with a donkey cart. His plan was to use back trails through the forest to keep away from both the African Union troops and al-Shabaab. 
they'd only got around 20 miles before they were spotted. I thought we were hiding under the, like, the donkey cart, and uh, some people just came by and they spotted us, so then uh, they went and told like, the police, you know, there's some white people. <laughs> so then like, the news started spreading that there's like, uh, 30 like, American commandos or something that are about to like, attack the village. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you were mistaken for possibly being, like, a bad guy, like, on the American side. Something crazy like that. The village police came, men who were aligned with al-Shabaab. They quickly realized they weren't under attack by American commandos, but they did recognize Omar. So then it became the whole issue of, like, oh, it's this guy, so, like, he's got beef with the Shabaab. Where Omar had once been a top recruiter, now the police identified him as the guy who had beef with al-Shabaab. They took him to the village, but they weren't sure whether they were supposed to hold him or let him go. So they called people higher up the chain. Which called like like a mayor type thing. The local mayor said to let Omar go. So Omar was free, but still over 150 miles from Bay and Bacol. Omar realized that his plan to just walk there with his friend and the donkey wasn't going to work. And they didn't want to risk getting spotted again. They hid out in the forest near the village for about a month until Omar managed to convince someone to drive him the rest of the way. For hours and hours, he hid in the backseat of a car with tinted windows to get past the Al-Shabaab roadblocks. Somehow, he managed to go undetected the whole way. When he finally arrived in Bayan Bakol, the local leaders there told him he was welcome to stay as long as he kept his head down and didn't try to go back to the front lines. So after that, then uh, they, they pretty much decided to just leave me alone, like Omar had been in the Bay and Bacola area for several months now. Food was hard enough to come by that he had planted a small garden for himself. Four cows ate a whole bunch of my beans. Are you growing the beans? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, I'm growing beans. They end on a farm and they just munched them all up. So I don't know, like it's so like month worth of work down the drain. Beans aside, Omar seemed to think he was safe at least for the time being. Now, what is going to happen to you if these um, people within the Shabab that want to find you, what happens if they find you? What are they going to do to you? I fall back a lot on the word surreal to describe my relationship with Omar. But it was surreal. The entire reason we were talking to each other was that we both wanted something from the other person. As a journalist, I wanted his story. As a jihadi fighter with an axe to grind, Omar wanted me as a way to get his message out to the world. But we also had this weird bond. I was the one person Omar could be an American with. He was the one person who had been on this ride with me. The one where I communicated every day with a terrorist. Recently, I had started trying to document that ride for a magazine article. So let me just tell you a little bit about what I'm doing, because we haven't been in touch for a while. So I'm, I'm basically, I'm writing a, a really long, very in-depth article about you right now for um, like a, a major magazine. I guess I hoped that this would keep him on the line, that his desire to be the center of attention would keep him calling me. And that's going to be coming out probably in about three or four weeks. There's a delay on the time, and now with your call... Jesus, man, you've totally screwed it up. (laughs) If I sound a little like I'm losing it, it's because I am. All I knew how to do in this situation was to keep trying to pull his story out of him, to keep being a journalist. 
whether or not it made any sense to build my entire life out of tracking every last move of Omar Hamami. So, uh, what's the name of the magazine? What is it called? GQ. GQ. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they could kind of paste my face onto like some some guy's body wearing like a suit. <laughs> that's hilarious I might have to use that line uh, that's so funny have you ever read GQ? hello? One of the people who paid the closest attention to al-Shabaab was a Canadian security expert named Matt Bryden. For a long time, he had lived in Somalia. But by the time Omar got there, he'd relocated to Kenya. Well, Hamami showed up uh, while al-Shabaab was still a, a sort of militant and perhaps the most disciplined military wing of the Islamic courts. Bryden says it didn't take long for Omar to align himself with al-Shabaab's second-in-command. And he seems to have become associated with a leader known as Mukhtar Robo. Omar says he became Robo's deputy and eventually married one of his nieces. Al-Shabaab started to divide in 2009. Two things happened. First, the Ethiopian army mostly left the country. So, in a sense, the main cause of the, the resistance came to an end. The second thing that happened was that al-Shabaab's main leader, a man named Ahmed Abdi Gadane, decided it was time for al-Shabaab to get revenge on people who'd helped the Ethiopians. He gave orders that any government figures who'd collaborated with the occupation should be apprehended and killed. And someone who defied that order was Mukhtar Robo. Robo and Omar disagreed with Gadane about the rules that governed when al-Shabaab was allowed to kill other Muslims. It became clear that there were two camps in al-Shabaab, and one of them, Godanes, was the more ruthless and the more brutal. The first complex attack was already in 2009, when a bunch of gunmen wearing suicide vests went into a hotel called the Muna Hotel, and they went room to room and they just shot everybody they could find. These guys, what they do to people, they chop off heads, they blow up innocent people in coffee places, in hotels, in weddings. Malik Abdullah was the Somali transitional government's director of communication during much of this period. All they were doing is killing a bunch of innocent black people. Poor black African people. That's who they were killing every day in the name of Allah. And this didn't go down well with all parts of al-Shabaab. Robo and some other leaders, top leaders of the movement, were uncomfortable with this indiscriminate murder. These kinds of things really started to split the movement. And Hamami found himself with Robo on the side of al-Shabaab that started to call for some moderation. That indiscriminate killing was, was not okay. Al-Shabaab had recruited hundreds of foreign fighters. Many, like Omar, wanted a say in how things were going. These kids that come from America and Europe, they are very open about their opinions. And, you know, they have this freedom that they can say, hey, this is wrong. And the guys who are over there, those are not the ones you tell them they're wrong. They take it personal. At one point, Omar told me a story about going to meet with Gadane in person. 
But uh, I was summoned by the leaders about to have a one-on-one uh, discussion. He said he told this brutal, murderous leader to his face everything that he was doing wrong. That violence should be only used against military targets. That the foreign fighters who had come to join al-Shabaab should be treated better and shown more respect. That al-Shabaab shouldn't just focus on getting control of Somalia, but should genuinely work towards creating a global caliphate. He went against the leadership, the guy who was in charge, who was very evil guy, the most evil guy in, in the Shababs. And when you go against that guy, there was only one way out of the door, and it's to be killed. Recently, Gadane's faction of the Shabab had begun a quiet purge of foreign fighters, accusing them of spying, then disappearing them into secret prisons, where they were tortured. Some were even executed. Omar had made it to Bayan Bakal, an area of Somalia where Robo's clan was powerful, and Omar thought he'd be relatively safe. But he still slept with an AK-47, just in case. He tried to live the quiet life for a while, but it wasn't long before his old instincts began to surface. His need, as he was fond of saying, to speak out against oppression. What's, what's happening? There was going to be a news item Omar wanted to tip me off about. Okay, so um, do you, can you give me a hint at all, or, or is this uh, all top secret? Omar had planned, I don't know what, something for that Friday. He was vague about the details, but it was now clear why Omar was reaching out to me. He wanted me to cover whatever it was he was planning to do. Something he'd been warned by others could get him killed. Do you really think that they're going to kill you for whatever this stunt is that you're pulling on Friday? Omar says he doesn't know, that he can't really put anything past al-Shabaab at this point. Shit. No, call me tomorrow. Call me tomorrow. All right, peace, buddy. Peace out, he says. Uh, the fuck is this guy planning for Friday? We were back in our old roles. Omar warning me that his life was in danger, insisting that he needed me to help save him. Me half convinced that he was right, and half convinced that he was just crying wolf to keep me around. Omar's big Friday surprise, it turned out, was another video on YouTube. This one in Arabic. As I watched it, I realized it was the second half of the message he had recorded months before, the one where he had said that he was afraid his life was in danger. He was wearing the same clothes, seated in the same empty room in front of a black flag and his AK-47. But unlike the first video, this one is directed to the leaders of al-Qaeda. Earlier that year, al-Shabaab had officially declared its allegiance to al-Qaeda. Omar was basically going over his own leaders' heads to complain to the big bosses. He asked them to intervene on behalf of the foreign fighters in Somalia, who he said were being singled out by al-Shabaab's leaders. He went on to say that a faction of al-Shabaab only cared about taking power in Somalia and didn't really care about the cause of global jihad. By airing al-Shabaab's dirty laundry in public, Omar had taken his fight with Gadane to a whole new level.
I didn't hear from Omar again for two weeks. Basically, I said that, you know, I'm still alive. They didn't take any actions or anything against me up until now. Everything's normal. But uh, the day that the film went up, they, they put another guy in jail. <laughs> oh, really? Who'd they put in jail? Another foreign mujahid, another guy, another Arab. Things hadn't gotten any better since Omar's video had gone up. Al-Shabaab had thrown another foreign fighter in jail. Oh, okay, got it. And uh, what do you think? Was that an action? The response, too, was to just keep the depression going. A week later, <laughs> yeah. Omar called with another, even darker story. Check it out. Last night, they said that uh, another two guys, foreign fighters, were like uh, Two foreign fighters had been killed, men who had shared Omar's view of Al-Shabaab. Omar saying that the official story, the Al-Shabaab story, was that the two men had been killed by American special forces, who had snuck in from a boat somewhere off the coast. It was a story that seemed transparently false to Omar. Omar said the killing was getting out of hand. It's not a joke anymore, so... Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen next, but, you know, it's good to have that documented. I had never heard Omar sound so scared. I don't know, really, right now, I'm just kind of confused because uh, it's like every single, like, guy that's on the understanding of what the Shabab are about just keeps getting taken out. <laughs> Everyone who has my understanding of the Shabab keeps getting taken out. It just comes down to me and then the guy that I was kicking with the donkey. So I don't it know just comes down to me and the guy I was kicking it with with the donkey. We're just sitting around, waiting to be taken out like chickens. A part of me always thought that Omar would die in Somalia. But it had become emotionally exhausting to be the person he had invited to watch that process play out in real time. It wasn't that I stopped caring about what would happen to him, but I was less and less sure I wanted to be the person Omar reached out to whenever there was one more threat that put his life in the balance. He wasn't the only reason my life felt out of control. While all this was happening with Omar, my marriage was ending. Not officially. That wouldn't happen for almost a year. But ending. My wife and I both grew up in Washington, D.C., so we made a plan to fly home for Christmas in December. Her from London, me from L.A. The conversation, the one where our marriage ended, took a couple of hours. That night, because it seemed easier somehow than telling them what had happened between us, we kept our plans to go with her family to a Christmas party. The host of the party had been Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Defense. My wife's father had been his deputy. Colin Powell was there. So was my wife's godfather, the former director of the CIA. I remember standing there, trying to keep it together, telling him how well things were going with his goddaughter. And then my phone buzzed in my pocket. It was Omar. The FBI had just added him to their most wanted terrorist list, and now he was calling me while I was talking to a man who had once run the CIA. I excused myself as best I could and went into an empty room to take the call. I can't talk to you right now. Why not? I just can't. Omar told me he had walked miles to get cell reception. He said it was important. We're at code red. I was standing in the private library of a former secretary of defense talking to an alleged terrorist. I told Omar whatever it was, it would have to wait, and I hung up. I wanted to be done. Omar didn't call me again for weeks. 
I didn't pick up when he did. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel, of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business Affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions, Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Coming up on American Jihadi. Omar was very focused on trying to protect his operational security, but he wasn't really that good at it. He would make what I thought were dumb mistakes about his location, you know, at times. He would be like, I'm on a cart and we got to have ice today. And I was like, well, you just told everybody you're within a 30-minute ride of an ice machine. We developed a a pretty good map of of his activities. I did try and encourage him to to come in, to give himself up. You'll have to do some jail time, but you'll be alive. Shabab, make official announcement in front of Amriki. Drop your weapon before 15 days or be killed. It's on. <laughs>